Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Ephesians chapter 1, the gospel of your salvation. That's what Paul calls it, the good news of your salvation. What is the good news of your salvation? I don't want to just read past that phrase and not spend a little bit of time understanding and defining what the good news of your salvation actually is. The gospel in its most basic form is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But Paul here adds the word, the gospel of your salvation. He qualifies what kind of good news he's talking about. He's not just talking about the fact that Jesus did live on planet Earth and that he did die and that he did resurrect. But now he's also talking about the results of that work that Christ did. And the result, he calls the good news of your salvation. So what is that? Well, it starts with the fact that the very Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, the unique Son of God, 
left his home in heaven, took on flesh to make himself like his brethren, and he came down here to this dirty, dusty ball, and he walked around on planet Earth in shoe leather just like human beings do. While he was here on the planet, he did nothing but good. He was sinless, perfect before the law. And therefore, the great crime is that human beings, his creatures, the ones that he himself made, those creatures were allowed not only to put their hands on him, which is criminal enough, but then to beat him and to abuse him and to make him bloody and to mock him and to spit on him and to pierce him and to nail him to a chunk of wood. And all of that was in accord with what the scriptures had already predicted he was going to do, which is why he would say, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. He came to fulfill what the word of God had already said about the Messiah, that when the Messiah came, he was going to be rejected by men. And so Christ was rejected. The book of John starts out by telling us that he came to his own and his own received him not. So then he died on the cross, but theologically we are told that his death was not for himself. Instead, our sins were imputed to him so that in his death, full payment was made for our sin debt. He gave himself willingly as a ransom price, having given his blood and his body as a ransom price. He fully accomplished redemption. He bought us back from ourselves, from the slave market of sins. He bought us back to the Father who had loved us since before the foundation of the world. He, as a perfect Savior, saved perfectly. He established our righteousness so that the same way that our sinfulness was imputed to him, his righteousness is imputed to us so that we can stand before God, as Paul said, holy and blameless because of the astounding love of God. But not only the astounding love of God, but the astounding power of God. Because Paul is about to tell us that God demonstrated his power and his might and his authority by the fact that he brought Jesus back from the dead. Jesus was actually dead, literally dead, three days dead, in the tomb, dead. And God, by his own power, by his own ability, by his own will, raised Jesus from the dead, which is a sure testimony, a sure demonstration that God accepted the sacrificial work that Jesus did. Jesus propitiated the wrath of God so that God is no longer angry at us. The sin debt is fully paid because of that propitiatory price that was paid as a ransom price to establish our redemption. And all of that happened, according to what Paul writes here, all of that happened according to the plan that God designed before the foundation of the world, before God made anything, before he established the first stars, the first planets, he had a plan. And his plan was to glorify his son so that his son's name, his son's reputation would be the most glorious reputation and name in all of his creation. And the way that he accomplished that was by sending his son to redeem people who otherwise were irredeemable. You can prove that simply by thinking about yourself. Think about the fact that you are utterly incapable. Chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians is going to start describing your incapability, your sinfulness, your rebellion, that you were indeed an enemy of God and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Don't miss that word, dead, D-E-A-D, big capital letters, red letters, great big font, dead. 
You didn't just stub your toe. You didn't just fall over slightly. You were dead because of your trespasses and sins. So Paul says that the Son of God accomplished everything necessary for your full, complete redemption and salvation because you were incapable of doing the least little thing to help yourself. It had to be Christ who did it. It had to be God who designed it because you couldn't do it, wouldn't do it, don't have the ability to do it. Therefore, God did it all. He did it completely. He did it from beginning to end, and we really ought to be thankful that that's the way God designed it, because had he left it up to us, we would surely mess it up. And so he did it all. He sent his son. His son died. His son rose again. And then just to top the whole thing off, after talking to his apostles and showing himself alive to those people he had chosen, he then sailed up off into the blue, was engulfed by clouds, was escorted to the very throne room of God, where he sits at the right hand of God the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. So that even as we are walking through this fleshly life, when we sin, because we're still walking in this flesh, we're still going to sin. When we do, we have an ever-living advocate with the Father. That ever-living advocate pleads the price of his blood. He pleads the finished work that he himself has accomplished. He pleads the payment that he has already made. Therefore, we get to stand before God, holy and blameless, mission accomplished. So this was the plan of God since the very beginning. He wrote down particular names of particular people in the Lamb's Book of Life so that when we get to heaven, he can open that book, point to our name, and say, I knew you were going to be here because that was his plan from the very beginning. And we are going to worship and thank and praise Jesus Christ, through God the Father, for the rest of eternity, that is the purpose for which we were created, and that is why Jesus actually came and accomplished all that according to the very plan of God, which was accomplished before the foundation of the world, and that, according to Paul, is the good news of your salvation. And the more you understand about the goodness of God who did all those good things for you despite the fact that you are you and despite the fact that you couldn't possibly earn it or deserve it, the more you understand that the good news is good, good, good news. And it just gets gooder and gooder the more you know about it. And that is the reason that we spend the time looking into the doctrine that Paul wrote, the doctrine that Paul presented to us, the doctrine, the teaching that he learned from Jesus Christ because he wanted us to know the intricacies of the gospel of our salvation. That was all introduction. In him also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's verse 13 of chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians. You have heard the gospel, the good news of your salvation. I have just spent the last 10 minutes laying out the gospel of your salvation. I have tried to include as many details as I could think of that biblically describe the gospel of your salvation. Now, having heard the gospel of your salvation, having listened to that message of truth and having accepted it, having believed it, says Paul. I told you last week that is the verb form of the word pistis. The word pistis is the word that is translated faith throughout the Bible. We don't have a verbal form in the English language of the word faith. We don't have faithing. But I'm going to use that word, faithing, because that would have been a better translation of what Paul just wrote here. After having heard the gospel of your salvation and having also had faith in it. 
recognizing that that, that finished work, that completed work by Jesus Christ is what's going to carry you from here, from planet Earth, all the way to the eternity that God has determined for you since before the foundation of the world. Holding on to that as your sole hope when you leave this planet, that's what faith is. Walking through this life, recognizing that the word of God is more true than your circumstances. And let's talk about those circumstances for just a moment, shall we? There is a very concerted effort in the Western world at this point to suppress this truth. Paul said that wicked men will hold down the truth in unrighteousness. Their unrighteousness will cause them to suppress the truth of Christ and the truth of God. And that is happening now politically. That is happening societally. If you announce publicly and declare yourself to be a Christian, trouble is just going to come as part of the package. But Jesus said that. He said, in the world, you're going to have trouble. And his reasoning for it was, they hated me. They're going to hate you. They hated me without a cause. They're going to hate you without a cause. And as the world has progressed for the last couple of thousand years, Christianity has been systematically pushed down, systematically suppressed by the evil of this world. But it's not only politics and it's not only humans, it's not only our society that these days is suppressing the truth of Christ. The prince of the power of the air seems to be working overtime these days because we do see it everywhere in every aspect of this world, in every aspect of our lives here on the planet. We see this consistent, demonic, spiritual oppression against the truth. And so it's easy for us because we're human beings and we want to be liked naturally. Of course, Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. But we want to be liked, we want to be friendly, we want to get along with people. And so there is this pressure for us to not be so upfront about our profession of Christ, for us to just keep that to ourselves. Because the society will say, it's okay for you to be a Christian, you probably need that crutch, but someday when you grow up and become smart like we are, you will recognize the lack of value to Christianity, because really intellectual people don't believe stuff like that. And then our natural tendency is going to be to say, well, all right, I just want to go along and get along. I just want to be part of the world and not make enemies. Paul here says, having heard the gospel of your salvation and having also lived by that faith, died in that faith, continued in that faith, persevered in that faith, Having also had that faith, you were sealed in God or sealed in Christ. We don't know which person is the him here, but we were sealed in him by the Holy Spirit of promise. Throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was promised. And so Jesus said to his apostles, I will not leave you orphans. I will pray to the Father. He will send you another spirit, that spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. He will be with you. He will be in you. He will abide with you. He will seal you for all eternity. He is the down payment. He is the proof of everything else that God has said he is going to do for you. Verse 14, that spirit is given as a pledge, as a down payment of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. So here's another aspect of the gospel of your salvation. Why did Jesus come to the planet? Why did Jesus give himself to the torturers? Why did he bleed out? Why did he allow his creation to pierce him? Why did he allow his creatures to put their hands on him? Why did he allow people to spit on him and pluck out his beard and punch him in the face? Why did he allow all that? 
he allowed all that because we are and always have been and were determined before the foundation of the world to be God's own possession. We belong to God. He knew we were his. He knew it from the very beginning, and that's why he sent his son to redeem those people whose names are written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. And all of what Christ did is done with a view to, looking to, understanding, recognizing the value of, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. All of it from beginning to end. If you've got nothing else out of this first few minutes, I hope you recognize that all of it from start to finish, from before the foundation of the world, Lamb's Book of Life stuff, all the way to New Jerusalem and our eternity in God's presence, all of it is being done for the glory of God. God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And so for his own glory, that is the reason there was a fall in the garden. That is the reason that mankind was plunged into sin and rebellion. That is the reason that we are all born enemies of God and come out of the womb speaking lies. That is the reason that Jesus came to redeem us, even though we were fallen sinners who were chosen by God, elected by God since before the foundation of the world to be his own possession. And all of that wraps up to the praise of the glory of God. He did it all on purpose so that he alone gets all the worship, he gets all the credit, and none of it goes to us because, what's that word? We're dead. We couldn't do anything. We're the dead ones. He's the ever-living one. And he gave life to dead sinners. That's amazing that God would do that for us. The astounding power, the astounding grace, the astounding goodness of God, that is why Paul could call it the good news of your salvation. It's remarkably good news. Now I think we're into the new stuff. I think that's the overall review that brings us up to verse 15. Knowing all that, this is the reason I summarized it, because verse 15 starts for this reason, well, we got to know what that reason is. The reason is because you understand, you believe, you have faith in the good news of your salvation. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a pledge of your eternal inheritance. And all of that is with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of the glory of his own grace. And it's for that reason, writes Paul, that I too, having heard about the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus, that faith that exists among you, when I heard that, when I understood that, that the Christian faith was also living and active among you, and I heard about your love for the saints. Look how Paul combined those two ideas. He started with your faith in Christ Jesus. I heard about that, and that is the reason that I'm writing now and that I am establishing all this theology so that you would have this fuller understanding of the gospel of your salvation. For that reason, I'm writing to you because I heard about your faith in Jesus Christ and I want it to be a full and complete understanding of everything that Christ did for you. But then I also have heard about how you're walking it out, how you're living it. Not just that you're sitting at home in a corner somewhere having faith in Jesus, but that you are also walking it out in your life and it is most demonstrated by the way that you sacrificially love one another. So Paul says, I heard about your faith and I heard about what your faith has accomplished in the way that you deal with one another, that you walk in love for one another, the kind of love that the world would not and could not walk in. Sacrificial, self-giving kind of love for one another. Looking after each other, taking care of each other. Your love for all the saints. That word saints right there is the Greek word hagios. 
That is the exact same word that is translated in other places as holy. So you are the holy people. You are the set-apart people. That's what the word holy means, set-apart. You're no longer just part of this world. You're no longer just part of general humanity. You are the chosen elect of God, determined before the foundation of the world. He has determined to make you holy and blameless before himself, and therefore he can already refer to you as the holy, as the hagias, as the set apart for his own possession. So, for this reason too, having heard about the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, all the holy ones of God, I do not cease giving thanks for you. Why would Paul give thanks to God for them? The way so much of the religious world thinks about our relationship with God, they start with the human being. They start with the sinner. Their theology becomes sinner-centric. And they say that you have to choose, you have to decide. You have to look at God's batting average and determine that he's a gentleman and he's trustworthy and then place your faith in him. That's the way that so much theology is taught. But Paul's entire gospel of your salvation is God did it all because you are dead. And therefore, when Paul found other saints who had the like same faith that he had, he gave Thanks to God for the fact that God was saving those people. So Paul's theology is very, very consistent. He does not say to them, thank you for joining the group. Thank you for being part of this whole Christian movement that we've begun. Instead, he says, every time I think of you, every time I am praying for you, I give thanks to God for you because I've heard about your faith and your love for the brethren, your love for the saints. And therefore, I thank God because Paul recognizes that it is only God who could accomplish that. And that they didn't do it themselves. They couldn't have done it themselves. They were, what's that word? Dead. They were dead. And now they are alive with a living hope and a living faith and a living love for all the saints. And therefore, Paul would say, I thank God for you because you couldn't be like that otherwise. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. So it's very clear who Paul is talking to when he's giving thanks for them. He's not thanking them. He's thanking God in his prayers for the fact that they have faith and that that faith is demonstrated in their love for one another. It's very, very consistent. Verse 17. And why does he give thanks for them? when he's making mention of them in his prayers. Verse 17 says, So that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. There are three aspects there, but notice that Paul says it is God who gave you all three of these things. All three of these abilities are gifts that God gave you. He identifies God. He is the very God of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's that Trinitarian thing that we've been talking about. God the Father is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Father of all glory. And he gives you, number one, the spirit of wisdom. Now that may be a reference to the Holy Spirit, who Jesus referred to as the Spirit of Truth. But it may also be saying just that character, that personality within you that gives you understanding, that inner man that has comprehension and intelligence so that you would have the spirit of wisdom. 
Not the wisdom of this world, but the wisdom that understands eternal things, even in the face of all the oppression that goes on in this world. That you, nevertheless, would have this peace that passes understanding because you have this comprehension, this understanding that God is in charge, that God knows what he's doing. For how many years now here at GCA have you all heard me say, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse. And now, sure enough, it's beginning to get worse. But it's been getting worse for a while. It's just becoming really apparent now. Pretty much everybody sees it. Even unbelievers see it. It's just, it's getting worse. But we have the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of wisdom to see the world, to look at the world, and to understand that this world is acting exactly in accordance with what the Bible says was going to happen. The Bible says evil men will wax worse and worse. Sure enough, that's what's happening. Sure enough, that's what they're doing. The Bible says that evil men are going to hold down the truth. They're going to repress that truth. Well, sure enough, that's what's happening. The Bible says the prince of the power of the air is going to influence the whole world and the kingdoms of this world, the governments, the powers of this world, the politics of this world. Well, sure enough, that's what's happening. And so we can see it. It's happening right in front of everybody's eyes. But only some people can actually see it and comprehend it. Christians, given the spirit of God, who are given the ability to understand the word of God, we have that spirit of wisdom that is able to look at this completely silly, nonsensical, stupid world and make sense of it and say, yeah, this is exactly the way God designed it. So we have this spirit of wisdom, but that was a gift from God and of revelation. That word revelation, apocalypsis, is the same word that's used for the book of Revelation. And it means an uncovering. It means an unveiling. It means things that are generally not known are known to you because God has unveiled it. He's opened it up to you. What were we reading just last week? That Jesus exegeted God. No man has seen God at any time. But Jesus came and explained him, laid him out in front of us. If you comprehend that, it's because Jesus told it to you, and then gave you the ability to understand it by unveiling it to you, by revealing it to you. So it's not just enough to have the spirit of wisdom, but once you have the spirit of wisdom, there is this unveiling where suddenly the word of God makes sense to you. You can go your whole life not understanding what's going on in the Bible, and then suddenly one day, you read it, you see it, you understand it, you hear it, and you say, that's the very word of God. I comprehend that now. Well, that is part of that revelation that God is giving you. Revelation in the knowledge of him. That takes us back to the word of God. Where are you going to get the revelation of the knowledge of him? There are a lot of people who claim Gnostic knowledge. There are a lot of people who claim that they just suddenly, mysteriously, magically, spiritually understand these deep and eternal things because they learned it by staring at a tree or listening to a babbling brook. And they're just really, really spiritual, and so they really understand these things. But the only place you're going to get that kind of knowledge of God is from his revelation of himself in his word. And so that's why we spend so much time just pounding away at the word. What does the word of God say? Because that is the very revelation of God. And you are given by God the knowledge of him through his word. So he's going to give you the wisdom, which means the ability to discern, the ability to comprehend what is right and wrong, wisdom to listen to the truth and recognize it as the truth, and he's going to give you the unveiling, the apocalypsis, the revelation of himself. And he's going to do that through his word. And he's going to give you the knowledge to understand his word. Proven by the fact that I'm sure all of us have had the experience of attempting to read his word and not understanding it. And then one day we could understand it. 
because God gave us wisdom, knowledge, and revelation. That is why Paul was praying for the saints. For this reason too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus that exists among you and your love for all the saints, I don't cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Notice also the order that Paul put that in. The initial impetus, the beginning of your Christian journey is when God awakens you, brings you up from your spiritual deadness by the Holy Spirit that he implants in you. That Holy Spirit convinces you of your own depravity, your own sinfulness, your own need for repentance, and then produces in you Faith. Faith is a gift. He's going to get into that in chapter 2. That faith is a gift from God by the Spirit. But you don't stop there. You don't get to the point of, oh, now I believe I'm good. I'll just wait it out now. Instead, Paul says that once you have faith, once God has given you Faith through the Spirit of God implanted in you. After that, he prays that God would continue to give you wisdom and to give you revelation and to give you knowledge. I've been at this a long time. I was raised a Lutheran boy. I started my internship at a church in Los Angeles back in 1984. Wow, I feel old now that I'm recounting the dates. And we've been a church here in this location for 20 years, but we were meeting in my house for five years before that. I'm saying I've been at this for a long time, this Christian journey. And yet there are still things that I find in the Bible that just astound me, that just amaze me, that just knock me back on my heels. And I think, was that here last time I read this? It's just amazing. And it's also amazing that every one of you right now in unison like bobbleheads are all nodding at me because you've had that experience too because God gave you faith faith in Jesus Christ at the beginning of your Christian journey but along the way in the Christian journey he is continuing to give you knowledge and he's continuing to give you wisdom and discernment and understanding he's continuing to feed your faith He's continuing to give you revelation of himself as you go along in this Christian journey. And that's amazing. That's wonderful because every time that happens to me, at least, it is a reaffirmation that God is real and he's still with me. Because I know I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have figured that out. I couldn't have made that word come alive because I've read it before and it wasn't in there. But this time it was. And how did that happen? That's beyond my capability. And so I know that that's the very spirit of God continuing to do what God alone could do and graciously does do, which is give us wisdom and knowledge and revelation. And I think when this life is over and we cast out into eternity on that faith that Jesus Christ has accomplished everything necessary for our complete eternal salvation, I think we're going to get to heaven, and that's when the knowledge and the wisdom and the revelation is just really going to start. I think we're down here just understanding it as best we can, and God is giving us what is necessary to get us home, but I think once we get home, we're going to be astounded. We're going to be amazed because there's not a one of you, no matter how hard you try, who can actually comprehend the eternal glory of an eternally righteous and holy God. You can't comprehend that. You can't envision that, at least not accurately. But you're going to see it. You're going to stand before God blameless and holy. And you're going to see the light that no man approaches. 
I mean, it's astounding language that the Bible uses when describing what we are to inherit. And our inheritance is guaranteed to us by the fact that we have the Holy Spirit as a pledge of all that. And along the way, through this lifetime and through eternity, God is going to be revealing himself because he's in the business, as I've already said, in the enterprise of glorifying and revealing himself. You've probably heard the name Jehovah before in your life. Jehovah is actually an alternate pronunciation of Yahweh, the name of God. But because the Jews believed that Yahweh was too holy a name to pronounce, they took the vowel sounds from Adonai, Adonai is usually translated God in our Bibles. They took those vowel sounds and added them to Yahweh and came up with Yahoah. We just say Jehovah. The point of bringing all that up is that Jehovah is a revelatory name, which is why so often in the Old Testament you'll see God use that as a proper name for himself and then add adjective descriptive words to it so that he is Jehovah Jireh. So that he is Jehovah Sitkanu. So that he's describing different aspects. I am the enough God. I am the God who provides. I am the God who forgives. Those are all revelatory aspects of God that we wouldn't know if God had not described himself that way. And he even describes himself through the names that he gives himself. So the next time you say Yahweh, recognize that you wouldn't even know that name had he not revealed it to you. He's the God who said, I am. The other gods are not. I am. Moses would not have known the I am God had God not showed up in a burning bush and revealed himself to Moses. He is the revelatory God. He's in the enterprise of revealing himself to his creation. And we are going to have that marvelous revelation of God through the rest of eternity. And I think it will never be exhaustive. I think we will continue to just be amazed on a constant basis at the revelation that God gives us of himself. So Paul would say, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and of the knowledge of him. Actually, I said will give. The NASB says may give. That's what Paul prayed for. Paul prayed, now that you have faith, now that you have love for the brethren, I pray that God may also give you a greater understanding of himself. Verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart, which is a really interesting way to describe it, but throughout the Bible, your heart is described as a stony heart. One of the ways that regeneration is described in the Old Testament in Jeremiah is that God will take out your stony heart and give you a heart of flesh which means a living heart, a pumping heart, a heart that is not dead. And so Paul says, once you're given this living heart, I pray that the heart, the center of your living in Christ, of your living ability because God has regenerated you, I pray that that heart also has comprehensive abilities, can also understand once you're given this wisdom and this knowledge and this revelation of God, I hope you can comprehend it. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, may be quickened, may be capable of seeing, won't be dark, won't be blind, but will be able to see clearly so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. I started this morning by saying this is the gospel of your salvation. It includes the fact that God chose certain people before the foundation of the world, and those are the people that he called to himself. 
The reason that we are going to be with him through all eternity is that he called us to himself. Okay, but there's also a hope involved in the calling. Now the word hope, I have to define again. In the English language, the word hope is used to translate the word elpis in the Greek. The word elpis means a confident looking forward to what you know is coming. And that's not really the definition of the English word. The English word hope means I hope it happens. It might, it might not. But I hope for it. Christmas Eve, you know, you go to bed hoping you're going to get a bike tomorrow. But you don't know if you're going to. You might. That's hope. That's English hope. But that's not what Paul is describing. The Greek word means a confident looking forward to what you know is coming, is going to happen. And so there's no word in the English language that's like that. There's no single English word that says confident expectation and looking forward to what you know is coming. And so they went with the word hope. But what Paul wrote is that he wanted us having the eyes of our, the vision, the understanding of our heart to be enlightened the reason for that enlightenment would be so that we could understand what we're supposed to be confidently looking forward to. The very inheritance that Christ died to establish for us, that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of all of that that we're looking forward to, that we know is out there, that we know is coming, is all part of the Hope of his calling us. Once he's called us, once he's enlightened us, once he's given us faith, from that point forward, we walk out our life in anticipation of what we know is coming. In other words, is life here on earth hard? Yeah. Is life here difficult? No doubt. Is life here tiring? Yeah. I often say I have enjoyed as much of this life as I can stand. I look forward to going home. But I walk out this life with the knowledge that God is in control and the confident looking forward to what I know is coming. Therefore, this world is not my home. My home is out in the future. I'm headed home. And I walk through this life knowing that's where I'm headed because I understand the hope of the calling of God to me. Does that make sense? I am laboring to make this as clear as I can make it. Because the language in the Greek is so exacting and so beautiful that I just want you to get the sense of what Paul is telling the church. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of God's calling of you. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the Hagias? Paul is also laboring to find words to describe the glory to come. I mean, it's one thing that you know it's the glory of God. But he also says, I want you to know the riches of the glory of God, the wealth of the glory of God, the abundance of the glory of God. I want you to know what are the riches of his glory, which he has given to us as an inheritance. The down payment has already been made. The pledge is already given to us. The Holy Spirit is that pledge, that seal, that everything else that's coming is true. And therefore, we hope for what is coming. And he wants us to have some comprehension of the riches, of the wealth, of the glory of God, and the inheritance that he has given in the saints, in us, in the hagios, in the set-aside, in the separated-to-him people the people that he chose before the foundation of the world. Are you getting some sense of the big plan of God? That's all I'm trying to lay out this morning, is that this is not a random affair. God is not just hoping that this is going to work out. 
He's got it planned and he has all the power and therefore he can work his plan and nobody can upset his plan. Nobody can disturb his plan because he knows what he planned from before the beginning of everything. And then he told it to us, wrote it down in his word and then gave us the ability to comprehend it and understand it so that we would have the constant expectation and looking forward to the glory that is to come and that glory is abundant described as riches and that is all coming to us verse 19 through the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who are faithing we who do believe and these everything I've described so far this inheritance this abundance, these are in accordance with the working of his strength, of his might, which he brought about. We'll talk about the bringing about in just a moment. Notice the words that Paul has used so far. He said, this is according to the surpassing greatness of God's power, God's dunamis, God's ability to do whatever he wants to do. God's ability to speak and things become. God's ability to control every atom and every planet and every star and have complete dominance and control over absolutely everything because after all, he has all the power. That's why we refer to him as omnipotent, omnipotent. He has all the power. Paul says it is the surpassing. In other words, nobody has this much. The amount of power he has passes everybody else. No matter whatever power there might be in the universe, he has more. It is the surpassing greatness. That does not mean, wow, God, great. <laughs> wow, great on you. It means immensity. It means the largeness, the surpassing greatness of his power. Toward us who believe. There is this astounding power of God sustaining us, keeping us in the faith, despite everything going on in this world that is under the influence of the prince of the power of the air and spiritual darkness in high places and the rulers of the darkness of this world. Nevertheless, we are being sustained by the astounding power of God which comes toward us who believe. And that power, that sustenance that God gives us is in accordance with the working, the outworking, the demonstration of the strength of his might. How many words does Paul... Okay, power. Okay, surpassing power. Okay, strength. Okay, might. Paul is just grasping for words here in order to say God's overwhelming Power allows him to do whatever he wants to do and he determined what he was going to do before he made anything and that's why things are turning out the way they're turning out because of the power of God who can do whatever he wants to do and therefore whatever is happening right now is exactly what he determined to do before he did anything that's surpassing power and might and strength and that's all toward us who believe and how did he demonstrate it? Verse 20. That power, that might, that strength that he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The reason that God raised Jesus from the dead was as a demonstration of his power. Which is why people to this very day still argue about it. Still have trouble accepting it. Still refuse to believe it. Because it's just astounding. It's just miraculous. It's just way beyond human capability. Nobody ever died and then decided of themselves to get back up again. Because they're, what's that word? Dead. Because they're dead, they can't get up again. God raised Jesus up again as a demonstration of the power and the might and the strength of God. So we who believe in the finished work of Christ and in the resurrection of Christ, we believe in the strength and the power of God, which he is demonstrating to us in the fact that he raised Christ from the dead and gives us faith in the risen Lord. It's all God doing all of it. And that is his amazing, astounding, 
surpassing greatness of his power, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. But not only that, I really like this phrase. Jesus didn't just get up. Jesus got all the way up. He got more up than anybody ever got up. He achieved ultimate upness. You don't get more up than he got because he went to the very belly of the earth. Three days, three nights, he was in the belly of the earth, according to his own declaration. And then he was raised back to life and he walked on planet earth and then rose up off the planet, was enveloped by clouds, and then was taken all the way, as I said earlier, to the throne room of God, where he sits at the very right hand of God. That's what Paul describes here, saying that that was the power of God on display, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and then seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You don't get more up than that. That's about as up as it gets from the belly of the earth to the very right hand of God in the heavenly places. And Paul says God did all of that to display his power to do whatever he wants. And then he gives us the ability to comprehend it and have faith in it. It's all his plan. He's doing all of it. But not only was Christ seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, but verse 21 tells us that he is seated far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. So when Paul talks about authority, power, dominion, rule. He's not only talking about the politics of this planet. He's not only talking about the kings of this earth and the governments of this earth. But he's talking about in the spiritual realm, whether you're talking about angels, whether you're talking about demons, whether you're talking about the denizens of hell, whether you're talking about the most extreme evil that you can think of in this world, he is above all of it. He is the authority over all of it. He is the king over all of it, the very king of kings. And it is God's intention that he would have the rule and the authority and the power and the dominion over all authority and power and dominion so that he would have a name. He would have an authority. He would have a reputation. He would have a name that is above every other name that is named. I don't care if you put your name on buildings so that everybody who comes has to read Trump on the front of the building. And then Trump becomes president, becomes most powerful person on the planet for four years. Uh, that's, that's about as named as you get named on planet Earth. That's about as much nameness as you can accomplish here on planet Earth. A reputation and authority to be the most powerful man on the Earth as the President of the United States. Doesn't get more than that. Jesus is way more than that. Want me to prove it? Trump's going to die. I'm not saying that like I'm anticipating it. I just know that every king of the Earth who ever lived, Nebuchadnezzar, how great was Nebuchadnezzar? God himself referred to Nebuchadnezzar as a king of kings and a lord of lords. I mean, everybody bowed to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, when he said, my great hand built all of Babylon, God made him crazy. When he recovered his sanity, Nebuchadnezzar would then say that he finally comprehended God and that God could do whatever he wanted to do and that all the peoples of earth were nothing, collectively nothing, and that God could do all his bidding, all his pleasing among the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth and no one can stop his hand and no one can say, what are you doing? So to the most powerful person on the planet at that time, God revealed himself as being way more powerful. And that is his intention for Jesus. 
the intention of God since the beginning is to lift up his son, his son's name, his son's reputation, so that his son gets all the glory. And then the son hands all that glory back to the father as they are in mutual praise and worship of each other. I mean, if the Trinity is busy worshiping each other, it seems like that's something we ought to be busy doing because that's what we're going to be part of for all of eternity. He is far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion. He's far above every name that is named, not only now, not only here on the planet, but in the age to come, in the new Jerusalem. In the ultimate glory, Christ is going to have a name that no one else can begin to rise to, to achieve to. And, as if that weren't enough, verse 22, And he, God, put everything in subjection under Christ's feet, and gave him, Christ, as the head over all things to the church. He gave Christ to be the head over everything in the church. Why do we meet? For the folks on the internet, there's a winter weather advisory here in Smyrna, Tennessee. The roads are icy. Snow apparently coming tonight. And so we were told, I got a warning on my phone this morning saying, if you don't need to travel, don't. Stay home. The roads are not good. And yet there is a group of people here in the building who drove to be here to worship God. That is why the church meets, is for the glory of Christ. Because he, God, has put everything in subjection to Christ, under Christ's feet. And he is the head over the entirety of the church. So the church's purpose, the church's mission, has to be the glory of Christ. The church's purpose for existing, for getting together, for continuing what we do, has to be the glory of Christ, because he is the head over everything. That's why we forgive each other. That's why we are kind to each other. That's why we look after each other. That's why we protect each other. That's why we love each other. Not for each other's sake. We do it because Christ, who is the head, has already demonstrated to us what it is to be forgiving and gracious and kind and loving. And then by his power working through us and that change of heart and that change of mind and that revelation of God drives us to be similarly kind and gracious and good to each other for Christ's sake. Everything we do within the church and indeed everything we do in our lives, we ought to do for Christ's sake. That's why we live the way we do. That's why we're in opposition to this world and its suppression of the truth and righteousness. It's because we are committed to Christ. And no one, no one in this world can shake us from that because he has all power, all authority, all dominion. He has a name that is above every name. And therefore, if he is the one who is sustaining you and preserving you here in this present evil age, you are not going to fall away from the faith because it is his power that is keeping you in the faith. And that's why we get together every once in a while and thank him for the fact that he is sustaining and preserving us in the faith and guaranteeing us an inheritance in eternity that we can't begin to comprehend. One last sentence. He put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and he gave Christ as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, if we're working backwards, I will admit that Paul's use of pos and pos, all in all, I, I don't really comprehend it fully. But I think what he was trying to say is, if I've left anything out in my description of the gospel of your salvation, 
If I've missed any element of describing to you that it is God and completely God and only God and none of yourself, if there's any part of that that you've missed, just understand that Christ is the one who is the head over the church. The church is his body and it is all full of him, of his glory, of his grace, of his goodness, of his kindness, of his worship. Of the very fact that we praise him and sing to him. That we come to him in our prayers. That he's the one sustaining us. He's the one that is preserving us. And in fact he is the one who is making completely full everything that's everything. The all in all. So Christ is the head of the church. We are referred to as his body. Paul is going to talk about that in greater length in both this letter and the Colossians letter, and he's going to describe the church as a a body. But that's later in the letter. You'll have to stick around for that. What you need to know this morning is the reason we gather as a church is because we are here to worship Christ, who is the head of the church, but that he has not only referred to us as his brethren and as co-heirs, And is the ones who are going to get the eternal inheritance. But now he has made the relationship so intimate between us and him. He would refer to us as his very body. And that's an astoundingly close relationship. That's closer than mother. That's closer than father. That's closer than brother. That's same person. Him and us. Us in him. Unity the way God and Christ are in unity, the church is in unity with the head of the church. And that's amazing language because he is all in all. I just heard somebody go, and that's right. Just, that's really astounding. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. We invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.